Hello, my name is Philip Canella, and today we're going to have a conversation beyond science and religion. Breaking new ground in thinking, exploring the outer limits of what we know about the world and ourselves, unhindered by common beliefs and perceptions. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion, taking on subjects from the Big Bang, the multiverse, and evolution to the supernatural and the new rising consciousness. This is where scientists, philosophers, New Agers, and spiritualists come together to discuss where this world may be heading. Now here's your host, lawyer, philosopher, and the author of The Collapse of Materialism, Philip Camella. Now science and the study of angels can be said to stand on opposite ends of the spectrum of credibility. Science tells us the high and how and why of the real world using testable theories and experiments science tells us how the world works what it is made out of the laws by which it operates its practitioners populate academia control the underlying narrative of the modern world everybody respects science the leading authoritative discipline in our culture angels on the other hand are the stuff of religious myth New Age Hocus Pocus, born of childhood dreams. It turns out, however, that one man, in another time, managed to accommodate both of these disciplines, science and the study of angels, in one career, and wound up making contributions to both fields, and that's specifically science and the occult. His name is John Dee. He lived from 1527 to 1608. He was Queen Elizabeth I's court advisor and astrologer, and he's claimed by some to be the foremost scientific genius of the 16th century. The question is, why have so few people heard of him? And it could be because he spent the last half of his career trying to contact angels and actually developed a methodology for contacting angels and trying to to develop and try to develop a worldview based upon the messages he was receiving. But probably because of that part of his career, his reputation essentially entered the dustbin of history, and much of his scientific research has been suppressed. Our guest today, Jason Louv, in a masterpiece of scholarship and thought, puts this all together in a new book entitled John D and the Empire of Angels. Now, Jason is the author of seven books, including Generation Hex, Ultraculture, and the Psych Psychic Bible. He runs the website Ultraculture and teaches courses on magic and spirituality at magic.me. He lives in L.A. Jason, welcome to the show. Uh, so, first of all, Jason, why don't you tell us how you got yourself interested in John D. Yeah, so I've been interested in, I guess, what we could call the esoteric and spiritual side of reality for the last 20 years. And it's just a fascinating subject to me, both as a journalist and as somebody who's interested in history and human culture and understanding how human beings work. I think that I've always been fascinated by all of the esoteric and spiritual systems of the world. And the thing that has most fascinated me, as I think most fascinated John D, is the idea that perhaps these 
these are hidden areas of knowledge. These are areas of knowledge that people have been afraid to look in and therefore perhaps have something really important to tell us about being human. And I've been fascinated by people who have used science as a tool to look at those areas to say that that is also not off limit. I mean, we've been having people who have had profound spiritual awakenings and spiritual experiences throughout all recorded human history. And in many cases, those individuals have shaped history. So I've constantly been fascinated. What is that? Is that something in the brain? Is that something that could be explained by neuroscience? Is that something that perhaps in the future, science and religion will come to meet on? And and that's, that's kind of what I've been up to for quite a while. So John Dee, I think, is the most fascinating individual of this entire field, at least to me, one of the very most, because he was a trained scientist who approached the area of the occult with the rigor and sincerity and acumen of a trained proto-scientist. This is, of course, before Francis, shortly before Francis Bacon and the Baconia method came about, which Bacon, of course, was, was very directly inspired by Dee. So Dee was kind of like a an early forerunner of modern science. He wasn't quite caught up with the modern scientific revolution, but it was actually Dee's work that laid the groundwork for the scientific revolution to happen. Um, so this, of course, was fascinating to me. How is there this one nexus point in the last thousand years of history where science and religion, and not even just religion, but the idea of the occult and the spiritual levels of reality, where these two things intersected and were very comfortable bedfellows for a short period of time. Well, it's it's fascinating because he's living just before the scientific revolution. And one of the things we know about the scientific revolution is that it's when humankind started thinking for themselves more and started questioning the religious world world order. But one of the things that's, that struck me here is that in many ways we seem to be reliving the same dichotomy but on a different level. And I'm wondering if you could comment upon that. I mean, do you see similarities between John Dee's time and our own time with regard to the separation between science and religion? Absolutely. I think that's one of the reasons why this book was so timely and so important to write where we live in a time now where science has come to, you know, is, is, is kind of exhausted its ability to explain the human experience to us. Um, and, and by the way, I, I do want to make some one thing clear, which is that I, I'm very careful not to put science and magic in opposition to each other. I actually think that's a false dictomy, and that's something that has been sold to us. It fuels, you know, all kinds of, you know, great debates and talk shows and things like that. The idea that these two things are separate and it comes down all the way to the, you know, the basic level where we get to watch Bill Nye and Ken Ham debating. And, and that's the, you know, it's, and the question is, which is true science or religion? So I don't think these things are similar at all. I, I think that they describe two different parts of the human experience and it's actually very disingenuous to put them in opposition. Now, the way that I look at this is science is the greatest invention of, of the human species. It's, it's really our crowning achievement. And science is the best tool that we have, uh, a light and a lantern in the darkness, 
to understand what's really there and not what we would like to be there. It's it's our way of turning on the lights in, as Carl Sagan called it, the demon-haunted world. And I think that, um, you know, I will always hold the, the torch for science. You know, I'll always hold the, the LED la- lamp <laughs> up for science <laughs> yeah. because I think that particularly now when we live in such an anti-science climate and science education is being defunded, just like arts education is being defunded, and it's really important, particularly in the era of, you know, the post-truth era and the era of fake news and all of that. It's very, very important to make sure that we maintain a very, very high level of scientific precision. So the last thing I want is to try to cast aspersion on the truth claims of science, because I think that that would be just simply foolish of me, uh, nor something that I would want to do. Now, in the, in the world of the occult, spirituality, esotericism, what we're looking at is something very different. If, if science is our best tool for exploring what is objectively real in terms of how the material world works, the, the laws of biology and chemistry and physics and so on and so forth, magic and the occult and spirituality are really about the subjective pursuits of the human, uh, human mind. They're about the world of subjectivity. These are ways in which human beings make sense and make meaning out of their random and disordered experience. You know, we, we can't, unfortunately, we can't just go through the world seeing it as a collection of uh, atoms and physical forces and things like that. Human beings are pattern recognition creatures by their very nature. They're story-creating creatures. As human beings, we confront the the chaos of the objective worlds and for better or worse we make subjective meaning out of it by telling ourselves a story about what we're seeing and the story that we tell ourselves about what we're seeing determines the life we're going to live and you could call that confirmation bias uh, of course and that really is what it is to some extent but um, when we're talking about spirituality and religion, we're talking about the stories that human beings have told for all human history. And, and these have an immense amount of effect and power in the real world, even if it's subjective. In fact, subjectivity seems to have a lot more power in the human sphere than ob- objectivity does. Just ask any science educator, right? I mean, subjectivity always seems to win out. So I think that as responsible humans in the 21st century, we need to really look at this and look at how we can use this to our benefit and, and, and in the sense of using magic and the idea of crafting subjectivity to tell ourselves more productive stories and more life-affirming stories. And so in a way, I reject religion. I reject you know superstition and dogmatism just as much as you know, Richard Dawkins or Christopher Hitchens or somebody like that would. But at the same time, I think that the world of spirituality and magic and the occult is a fertile ground for a playground for the artist or simply for somebody who wants to use these things to make more profound meaning out of their life and to inspire themselves and, and to become more awake and uh, a greater participant in, in public life in the world. So, that's kind of how I look at it. I have a very, you know, this is kind of the perspective that I've come to come to on it after 20 years. It's not a perspective that's unfortunately shared by most people who are interested in the occult who are very much usually uh, uh, superstitious and, and caught up in 
the false dictomy of magic versus science and all too willing to believe things that just aren't true. But the quantum leap in understanding these things un- comes when you understand that they are subjective and not inherently true in any way, but that they're fascinating ways of crafting our, our individual experience of the worlds. And, you know, I think that all of the spiritual experiences that are written about in sacred texts, whether it's Muhammad talking to angels in a cave or yogis experiencing enlightenment states or shamans talking to spirits or um, John D. talking to angels. These are all things that's possible to get your brain to do with the right rituals or yoga practices. Um, anyone can do these things and, and anyone can learn very profound and stirring truths about life. Uh, well, let me back up. Uh, uh, things about life that are not necessarily true, but that are subjectively powerful, subjectively fascinating and liberating and enlightening for the individual. So that's a bit of a rant, but I, I do like to clarify that, particularly now since we live in such an anti-science client, uh, climate. Well, well, let me let me just get to the, the big question here. And my, and my own um, prejudices and opinions are going to come out a little bit, but it's commonly um, observed that science is the pursuit of truth and they're the ones with the facts and they're the ones um, that define reality through their theories. Do you think that there's truth in, in the occult? And I don't mean all forms of occult, but just like there's not truth in all forms of science, but do you think that the occult tells us something about the world we live in. Absolutely, a thousand percent. Yeah, it, it's but it's it's subjective truth. It's like truth about what it means to be a. It's like it's like the type of truth you get from watching an incredible movie or you know looking at it. The feeling that you get when you look at a masterpiece artwork. I mean, that's the kind of truth, that, uh, quote unquote, that you arrive to through spiritual practice. It's it's subjective truth. It's subjective meaning. It's the experience of filling life with meaningfulness. It's not truth on the same level as you know, understanding the, the makeup of hydrogen molecule or something like that. That's a very different type of observed truth. Yeah, I, but, go ahead. yeah. yeah mm-hmm. I, I don't know. Okay, so let me, let, me, let me just try to put it this way. I, I've had a lot of mediums on, on this show, and I've read a lot of their books. I'm not a expert in mediumship. On the other hand, I've had a, a number of people on my show who I would say are authentic, and and are are actually speaking to spirits of some kind that they have some gift and every time i go to that conclusion i think back about i mean the one that comes to my mind is the quran because it's so so um openly uh uh the uh the angel gabriel i think it was you know giving the words of the quran to muhammad you know, I, I, I think, well, if we could base an entire religion upon an angel speaking to a, a, a founder of a major religion, then maybe there is truth in medianship. And so I, I, I borrow here from, from Ken Wilber's thought, who looks for the somewhere he writes that he looks for the, the, a grain of truth in everything. You know, he doesn't outright 
uh, dismiss claims of, of, of truth or fact claims. He looks for the grain of truth. And so when I'm reading about John D. And, and particularly the angelic encounters, I'm thinking, well, how can this be true? Do you go to that step, or do you think that this is some kind of subjective hallucination of sorts that John D. and his comrade, I guess, Kelly is having? Do you, do you think that, that this is a that he actually did contact angels? Well, yeah, I mean, first off, I love Ken Wilber. I think he's a, more people should read him. He's he's He really provides some really useful frameworks for looking at this. Now, in answer to the question about John D., let me come at this a few ways. In, in the book, I actually list 10 possible interpretations of what could have happened from all the way from it was literally real to it was a hallucination to psychosis to drug use to it was totally fraudulent, you know, and everything right. in between. Right. And and there's, you know, arguments to be made for and against both. And I think that it's responsible, certainly as a historian, to lay that out instead of saying what I think actually happened. Because, look, I mean, it, this was the 1580s. It's not like yeah. I can go back and definitively – all I have yeah. is the writings of the people who were there. I can't yeah. definitively go back and say what happened. True. I can just make my best guess from piecing together the, the historical data of what might have been going on with them. Now, so in response to whether it was subjective or objective, so I recently did an interview on my podcast, which is called Ultra Culture. Um, I, I did an interview with the mathematician, Dr. Ralph Abraham, who was one of the founders of chaos mathematics in the 1960s and spent a tremendous amount of uh, time working with computer graphics to model psychedelic states. He was very interested in the drug DMT and things like this. And he was also very, is very interested in John D and did a lot of experiments with John D's magic. And so this is somebody who's, you know, a lauded professor, you know, a lauded mathematician, you know, certainly not simply from the world of woo-woo. So I thought I would put this question to him because I thought of all people, somebody with his level of training and background would be able to give me a definitive answer on that outside of my own thoughts on it. And his, his answer was fascinating. He said he didn't think there's a difference, right? It's like the subjective and the objective, right? Ultimately, as you, as people see in the psychedelic state and things like that, like ultimately they tend to collapse at the end. And, and I, and I thought about that and I think that's true in the sense of, you know, the philosopher Wittgenstein and, or excuse me, not Wittgenstein, um, Bishop Barclay and David Hume, uh, the philosophers, wrote about quite a lot about how, you know, there's really we can't really perceive anything objective. It's not possible. We can't perceive anything outside of our subjective experience because even the what you're seeing in front of you, what you're hearing, what you're smelling right now, all of that is just data that's being processed by your eyes, your ears, and your nose and being turned into a simulacrum of reality by your brain. And there's literally no way for you to reach beyond that uh, unless, you know, we might argue that perhaps the scientific method and the, the fact that and mathematics might be our only way to perceive objective truth, particularly mathematics, which is something John Dee talked about at length in the introduction to Euclid's elements. Um, he uh, and and the idea that, for instance, there are mathematical constants expressed throughout nature, right, that we didn't create, we didn't make up, they can be seen 
you know, the number pi, the number phi, the, all of these, you know, E, all of these can be seen expressed all throughout nature. And that's not something that's possible for us, I guess, to overlay. We can't really like mathematics is not socially constructed. It's the one thing that we can point to that seems to have some type of eternal truth outside of our own subjective meaning making. And of course, this idea was fascinating to D. And he thought that, you know, if you wanted to talk to quote unquote God or whatever true intelligence there was underlying the universe, mathematics was the only way to do it because it was the only way to see eternal structures and forms expressed in the universe that you couldn't just fool yourself into thinking were there. You know, no matter how you look at the number pi, it's still the number pi. You can't fudge it. So, um, so that's kind of my answer on that. And then ultimately, if we look at, you know, like I have to look at these things from a from a historical point or a journalistic standpoint where if we just look back at the impact of these things on history, let's take the example of Muhammad. Right. So Muhammad claimed that he spoke to an angel and the angel transmitted the Quran to him. And this is a, this story is, of course, echoed throughout the uh, Abrahamic religions. It's echoed by Moses receiving the Ten Commandments. It's echoed by the angels that appear in the New Testament. It's echoed by, you know, the, the, the reception of the Book of Mormon. And, right. You know, certainly echoed by John Dee's experience. Now, any scientist looking at that would say that, come on you know and then particularly when you look at the financial motivation you know that somebody says this and then the next thing they do is start a religion and start gathering followers you know this immediately calls it into question and we can't make a truth claim on it just by the fact that it's successful in the world you know like the fact that you know what a billion people believe or however many it is at this point you know a billion or two billion people believe that the prophet muhammad definitely received a communication from an angel in a cave even if 2 billion people believe it to be true, that doesn't make it objectively true. However, it makes it extremely culturally important to understand, meaning you can't look at the history of the world and just discount these experiences because these experiences have shaped the flow of history and the shape of world culture and, and how humanity has constructed its meaning for itself. Now, true or false, we need to look at these things and take them seriously because, for instance, you know, the story, the stories that people believe or the stories that whole cultures believe, whether it's Islam or Christianity or, you know, atheism or science or anything like that, the stories that we tell ourselves about reality as cultures determine how we interact with the world. It determines the fate and the destiny of cultures. It's like code. It's like a rule book that somebody's following, a playbook. So on that level, it's important. I mean, go ahead. Yeah, I, I, I want to just put it in different words here, and, and I, I think that we might be saying similar things in sort of different ways, but one way to look at this is that given that at least our spiritual culture is, is founded on miracles, uh, in, such as the parting of the Red Sea by Moses, the, 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 the rising from the dead of Jesus Christ, the transmittal of the of the Quran to Muhammad, and we can go on and on and on, looking at the Bible and the and the Quran, and and then we can move to the Eastern religious texts. Given that our culture is founded, our spiritual culture is founded on miracles, who are we in this day and age to dismiss out of hand modern day miracles? This this is this is another way this is one way I would put it, 
and you know why who who are we at this point to say well even though much of our culture is based upon these these stories it those are all myths and they never actually happened it, it's it just it seems like it's more consistent to be looking for these uh, and I would I could use the word occult I could use the word parapsychology or the paranormal supernatural I could use all sorts of different words here but it seems if you really drill into it and you read the the, the more um, open-minded thinkers they're looking for room in our worldview for these uh, unusual events so so that's that's the way I look at it I, I I think that our goal our task here is to find a way to fit everything into one worldview which I sort of think is what you're saying well I, yeah I mean that our, our task is you know our culture is unfortunately you know is in a it's either one or the other right so but but let me and and we need to move towards you know like my my personal interest is I just want to I want to embrace the whole of the human experience I want to experience all of it and not just cut part off because for whatever reason so let me suggest a third position here a third option which is that you know um, the the option of the magician or the option of the occult so if you look at or shamanism perhaps you might argue although that's a little bit more loaded but if you look at religion so religion. Are you know religions are largely composed of texts or practices handed down by somebody three thousand years ago had this crazy experience and told us that God said this and so we now need to do this and follow these rules till the end of time, right? right. So do you, the the idea is not that the idea in religion generally is not for you to replicate the experience of the founder. the The idea is to follow what the founder said after he had the experience, right? Whether that's Buddha. Or Muhammad, or Jesus, or what, whoever it happens to be, right? Somebody a long time ago had this profound experience, and they said something which seems profoundly true. Therefore, we need to follow those dictates till the end of time and create some type of financial control structure around it to keep people in line, right? right. And then, of course, we get into all the abuses of, of religion, which need no repetition. Now, science, on the other hand, says rejects all of these things out of hand, which, you know, to take a Ken Wilber view of it, now this was critically important. We needed that to happen by gumdrop, you know, like by God, right? We needed that to happen because science took a flaming sword to all of this stuff and said it's not real. It's not, you cannot objectively prove any of this stuff. Therefore, humanity is now free. You don't have to be afraid of these dictates and dogmas and people threatening you with eternal damnation if you don't do what they say and priesthoods and you know we can't forget like the damage of the hierarchies of priesthoods did to europe or the rest of the world you know through the imperial age or you know the abuses of the catholic church and things like that it's like that's that's what happens when you get a, a religious control structure in place that of course has nothing to do with the founder who was long since dead and is now being used as a convenient excuse to keep people in line. Now, so religion says somebody a long time ago had an experience, do what they say. Science says these things are silly. You don't have to do any of the stuff, you know, get on with your life. Great. Okay, now, what is magic? The option of the, the, the magical option is to take the attitude of science and, and now apply it to the spiritual world. Meaning, do the experiments and figure it out firsthand on your own, not as received dogma. If we look at all of the 
these accounts, like even if we look at the accounts of these founders of religions, what did Jesus do? Jesus went out into the desert and, you know, meditated or fasted for 40 days and con- confronted the devil, which perhaps is his own unconscious mind. Well, what did Buddha do? Well, apparently he did the exact same thing. Buddha went and sat under a tree for seven years, meditating and confronted the devil, meaning the negative as- manifested aspects of his own mind until he overcame his own mind and saw through the illusion Right? What did any what did you know any yogi or, uh, do out of the history of yoga? Apparently, the same thing. They went and meditated in a cave for ten, twenty years. Uh, whether they're you know a Buddhist like Milarepa or a great Hindu yogi like Shivbali yogi, wow. Well, that's weird. Okay, so why these all all these people are are, are using broadly similar experimental procedures? Uh, social isolation, meditation, the cessation of thinking, the ces- uh, ces- cessation of desire. Uh, removal from the normal social context, and then they all seem to report similar experiences, some type of brain experience, perhaps, like a, an enlightenment type experience that then gets backward filtered back through, you know, then gets filtered through their cultural perceptions, right? So it comes out expressed in the local mythology of the culture, whether it's, you know, the, the desert in, in uh, Judea or you know, the, uh, medieval in, or, or uh, excuse me, you know, 500 BC India in the case of the Buddha, you know. Um, but if we dig down a little bit deeper and get past the, you know, the, the specifics, we broadly see people doing generally similar things and reporting generally similar results. Well, that's a great starting point for a scientific test, right? Okay, so if our hypothesis is if we do similar things, we might, you know, if we go meditate for seven years or or you know go into some type of social isolation and meditate within certain contexts within certain parameters all of which have been very clearly documented by a lot of these cultures uh, or the original founders particularly the buddha um well what's going to happen well there's only one, one way to find out and it turns out that by and large if you follow similar methods you get similar results now does that mean you've disproven you know, because then you can say, well, okay, now I understand it's just a brain event, something like that. Does that say, does that mean it's disproven the claims of religion or has it just gotten to the core of it, which is what these things are really pointing to? I mean, remember, when we're looking at religion, we're pe- looking at people who wrote, you know, sometimes, sometimes thousands of years ago in very crude language and had very crude metaphors to talk about experiences, whether they're talking about flying and things like you know uh, talking about things which seem like crazy supernatural claims but might actually just be ways to describe internal experiences or states of consciousness Um, maybe these people were were onto something right so that's how i feel about it and i think that whether we can you know maybe at some point we'll come to some maybe you know we'll get to a point where we can hook somebody up to an eeg or neurofeedback machine and we can pinpoint exactly what happens in the brain when somebody has an enlightenment experience. And the first thing that's going to happen when that happens is, you know, all the, the hardcore rationalists will come out and say, well, that proves it. It's all of this is just something that happens in the brain. But of course, the appropriate comeback to that will be, well, great. How do we repeat it? How do we turn it on faster? How do we spread that experience throughout human culture? Because we live in a very unenlightened and brutal world. Maybe we should figure out how to induce these spiritual experiences so that life becomes a little bit better here on this planet so yeah. that's that's how i feel about it yeah that that's that's really that's really well put i i think that i'm not sure if anyone's ever put it that clearly um 
at least for my purposes. Uh, this is Philip Camella. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion. I'm talking to Jason Louv, uh, the author of the, the fascinating book, John Dee and the Empire of Angels. And for those who think this book is about angels, by the way, it, it's not really about angels. It's a, I'm going to call it a intellectual analysis, part history, part uh, philosophy, part religious history of, a, of somebody who's been forgotten um, in history. His name is John Dee, and I think anybody can learn from, from reading this book. Now, I want to say a couple things here that I think that, that dawned on me as I was reading this book, Jason. And on my show a couple oh, months ago, I had Jeffrey Cripple on, on, on the show, um, professor of uh, esoteric religion. And he he's done a lot of studying of UFOs. And, you know, I am not, to be um, uh, full disclosure here, I'm not a big fan of UFOs and for a number of reasons. But he, he sets, he, his study went in a different direction. He was basically saying that our modern culture, which is sort of born in Star Trek and science fiction, we translate these spiritual images into things of our culture. And that got, and so, so what used to be angels is today a UFO. That's, that's where, that's, that's where this heads. And I'm, I'm sort of, and I had sort of the same thought as I was reading about John D. whether they were calling these spirits or these voices angels because that was the tradition that they were living in. That was the culture they were living in, this deeply orthodox religious culture. Um, and, 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 and that's, that's where the angels come from. But in fact, they were listening to the same voices that other mediums uh, have listened to throughout time. Do you think there's any truth to that? Do you think that really maybe we're talking about the same kind of of inspiration, of voice, of source? Or do you think there's something unique about John Dee and his angels? Yeah, I think that's I think that's probably a good hopping off point to understand these experiences let me put it that way and by the way i read jeffrey cripple's book that he did with willie stryber the supernatural which i thought was pretty interesting then i had a conversation with willie stryber on his podcast about it one of the things that struck me about that was that reading willie stryber's experiences whatever is actually happening there they in many cases sound interchangeable with what D and Kelly are reporting, and and I talked to Whitley about that, where I was saying, look, there's there's all these things in D's accounts that are the same in yours. Uh, for instance, the repetition of knocking, the appearance of things that look like small uh, forest creatures, things like that. I mean, really wild stuff, not what you get from the the common popular culture U- UFO lore. I mean, when you actually read that guy's experiences, what he's, it sounds way more occult. It sounds like. He's going into weird trance states and altered states of consciousness that would not be out of place in, for instance, the accounts of a tribal shaman in the Himalayas or something like that, which yeah. is something else that I have some experience with. Yeah. Uh, you way, know, it's pretty, yeah. it's pretty similar. And it's not there. like it's he's not this idea that, oh, a spaceship came down and he yeah. literally was, you know, taken up, although there's parts of that. It's more like he's having these weird 
experiences of other aspects of reality and it's has his it has this incredibly occult feel to it to it what i was talking to him about that he said well you know you know that he he was convinced that it was john d and kelly were, were you know phoning to the same place you know we're having the same experience similar types of experiences so i think there's some validity to that and i it's been studied at the anthropological level i quote an anthropologist from stanford named tanya lerman in the book who study these experiences cross culture and found that they were largely culturally um uh, what's the right word for it not necessarily culturally constructed but culturally determined in the sense that for, you know, the example that she gives is when people are having these experiences in Africa or India, these spirits tend to manifest as ancestral spirits yeah. or very positive and nurturing family type spirits. Whereas when they're had, these experiences are had by, you know, um, uh, Westerners from England or America with a background, a cultural background in severe Protestantism, just like Dee and Kelly, they tend to be angry and take on the character of a vengeful Old Testament God and you know, are very disturbing and things like that. So I don't, I don't think there's any, I think that's true in the extent that, you know, and I think that of course, you know, the last couple of generations have been raised on science fiction. So when they, you know, they have these experiences, they come through in science fiction metaphors because that's just closer to hand than, you know, old fairy mythology or things like that. But obviously the themes are similar and this has been written about at length by uh, both Kripal and lots of people before him. So, but then we also have to be careful because there are certain things that with these things that are so overwhelming that they, they, it's not just something in your mind. I mean, it's, it's, it's like the mind is, how do I put it? It's like the mind is a, your mind and the contents of your mind and the unconscious are a lens. It's like the, our best magnifying glass or telescope to be able to interact with these things and so when something comes through the lens it takes on the character of the lens right but it's not totally it's not created by the lens if that makes sense it's, it is seems to be some there is something i can't say out there just because i can't philosophically make that claim and back it up but it certainly experientially these experiences do seem to be communicating with something that is certainly transpersonal in the truest sense of the world, word and heightened in consciousness. And there's interesting things like, for instance, I mean, you know, if people take psych- uh, psilocybin mushrooms, which were very heavily used in South America. People who take psilocybin mushrooms, even if they do not have a background in Central or South America, will see Aztec pyramids and, and patterns and shapes that look like Aztec um uh, architecture similar with DMT and then and without having any of the cultural background in that, which is also fascinating. And then the question is, well, is this just what it produces in the brain and the cultures, you know, Aztec and Mayan cultures were, you know, creating architecture based on what they were seeing in the state. So there's things that are beyond, they can't just be not, you know, not everything is, I would say that everything is seen through a subjective filter, but not everything is subjectively or culturally constructed. But it is seen through a subjective or culturally constructed lens, which makes this, of course, maddening for anybody who's, uh, you know, a hardcore rationalist even approach because, you know, finally sifting through that stuff. The only real tools we have for that are probably the analytical tools. The, well, I'll say the, we we have the analytical tools of the Kabbalah and some to some degree Western philosophy to begin to look at these things. But I think that the only real set of analytical tools 
we have for looking at those experiences are probably the ones developed by uh, uh, the various uh, uh, schools of Buddhism, particularly Theravada Buddhism. I think they did a really good job of trying to piece, figure out what's real and what's not in those worlds uh, in a very logical sense, particularly the Tibetan uh, Tibetan Buddhists in the 19th century and, and things like that. Well, w- one of the the hallmarks of science, in fact, one of its its promises that it in fact cannot keep, but many people think it is keeping, is that there is a real world independent of human experience, and that there is that there is really a thing out there that it's up to science to describe and interpret. And from, you know, you mentioned Hume and, and, and Berkeley, and that leads to Kant and to, and to Hegel and all those guys, um, where subjective, um, a subjective contribution gets placed into perception. And then, of course, you move to modern science and a quantum theory where we have countless books telling us that there is no objective world. And I think in one of Stephen Hawking the late Stephen Hawking's last books, he said something like that there's no model independent world or model free independent world or theory free independent world that every description of of the world requires a subjective theory. And so the fact that we have these different interpretations of what's out there or, or of reality, whether it's physical or spiritual, you know, should not be surprising. Uh, I do think, and this is where, you know, I'm a practicing lawyer, and one of the things they say about juries is that a jury it ne- necessarily interprets a an argument, a case, a story, through their own perceptions, through their own experiences, because that's all they have. So all we have are our own experiences, and so it shouldn't be un- it shouldn't be um, unusual that when we hear these descriptions about a voice talking to us or or some or some uh, vision that we interpret um, those experiences through our own our 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 own consciousness, um, and so I I I think that is correct. I mean I and, and I do think. Turning to what you were, you were saying before the little break there, about how it is true that if you repeat certain um, practices, such as meditation, is 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 the probably the best example, then you wind up having similar experiences. You know, and and one of the things along those lines that always struck me when you get to near death experiences, a lot of the folks who encounter near-death experiences describe the same thing and this is something that's coming out more more and more when you when you when you read about these things and so there is a certain amount of repeatability in these experiences but maybe the moral of the story here maybe you could comment on this is that it's not as if we're describing a you know some kind of um, 50 face diamond some kind of pers- or, or or some kind of quartz stone that could be precisely described. We're really describing feelings and and uh, senses. We're not describing something that can be captured so precisely 
along the lines of a molecule or the distance to the to the planets or something. And so what I think is valuable here for everybody is that the world of experience of, of our everyday experience includes things like John D wrote about. It includes these occult type practices and we sh- and in our in our world is richer with them in it than without it. So why don't you comment upon some of those principles? I sort of laid out some, it was more of a observation than a question, but I do think that it's important for our modern world not to dismiss these things because they're part of the world. Yeah, totally. So yeah, let me, let me make this very clear. So so yeah, the thing about Stephen Hawking is 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 incredible, right? There's no model independent. Uh, what what was it? No model independent view of the world. Yeah, How did he put like, it? I think that, yeah, I think there's no theory. Yeah, there's no. Um, I think that's I think that's what it is. It's, it's either there's no theory independent uh, view of the world or no model independent view of the world. Right. That every every theory every interpretation of the world is based upon a model. Totally. So that's totally true. And all the greats of science, all the greats of philosophy, all the greats of spirituality have all told us the same thing. The Buddha said the same thing. And when we talk about uh, 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 Bishop Berkeley or, or Hume or Kant or Hegel, you know, a lot of those guys are basically cri- were cribbing notes from Buddhism at that point. You can see the cultural influence of Buddhism very directly manifesting in those guys' philosophies, where they're coming to very, very similar conclusions. Particularly because that that uh, those texts were getting translated uh, in Europe at the time. So, um, but here's the deal, right? Okay, so there's small M magic and big M magic. So small M magic is when we talk about all this you know, lifetime channel stuff, you know, it's like, oh, like supernatural experiences, you know, are ghosts real, are angels real, are miracles real, or is transubstantiation real? The idea of is the supernatural real or not? Okay, that's small M magic. It's largely uh, the, the, the demon haunted world of superstition. Uh, now, that doesn't mean those experiences aren't real. However, if you approach those experiences without the kind of understanding and the framework that we've laid out in this in this conversation, and you just believe them to be objectively true, full stop, you're going to have a pretty miserable life because you're going to live in a world of superstition and fear and being afraid when the lights go out. Now, Big M Magic. What is Big M Magic? Big M Magic starts with the understanding that we've just described. If there's no theory-independent view of the world, if there's nothing as model-independent, if everything is subjective, well, okay, now this drives religious people insane, right? Because religious people don't want that to be true. It it plunges them into a world of chaos and uncertainty. And to the religious-minded, this is the most unacceptable thing. They have to enforce the truth of something and this is the beginnings of religious violence it's like they have a theory of the world they say it's true it's not verifiable nobody believes it so they start enforcing it by violence to try and control the world because they're afraid of the inherent chaotic nature of existence or or seemingly you know we obviously can't say anything is inherent but so this drives religious you know this true perception drives religious people crazy and 
scientists, it doesn't make scientists particularly comfortable either because scientists really want to have a pet theory that they prove to be true and that they then build a career on and so on and so forth. And more broadly speaking, they want the, you know, the, the goal of science has been to perfectly understand and order the world. And this really caused, it really caused a lot of upset and nausea in the existential sense when we saw that beginning to break down at the beginning of the 20th century along with seemingly every other cultural institution. So long way of saying, so what we're talking about, this idea that everything is subjective, that there's no theory independent model of the universe is true. And it drives both, both, you know, uh, less evolved scientific people and, um, less evolved religious people crazy. So again, what's the third position? What's the third option? So the big M magic is when you say, well, if everything is, uh, nothing is theory independent, then why don't I just uh, arbitrarily choose different models to view the world from and cycle through them? So view the world as a hardcore scientist, view the world as a hardcore Muslim fundamentalist, view the world as uh, a yogi, view the, you know, but try these out as a scientist would, uh, be intellectually adventurous and shift your model of the world. We know from studying confirmation bias that we, uh, as Robert Anton Wilson put it, what the thinker thinks the prover proves. We know that confirmation bias is, is an unavoidable part of being a human. So if you look for, um, let's say, uh, if you look for examples uh, of the Islamic story being true in the world, you'll see them if you really believe it deeply enough. If you look for examples of Christianity being true in the world, uh, you'll see them if you believe it deeply enough. So why not play around with this? Why not have fun with this? Why not accept the chaos and be okay with the fact that everything is broadly subjective? And then at that point, what you're talking about is hacking the human mind. You're talking about not just the mind, because I don't want to be too reductive, but you're you're talking about hacking the human experience. Let's put it that way. You're, you're purposefully and intentionally bringing consciousness and willpower to bear to hack your own experience whatever it is, whatever human experience, human experience actually is, you can purposefully change it by taking on new models. But you really believe those models to be true, and yet do not, you don't get trapped by them. You know, change it up every few months, just like you would change a workout or something like that. And what you'll experience, what you'll find is when you've done this, let's say 10 times, right, when you've been through 10 different worldviews, you have a much much broader view of human existence than somebody who just stays hidebound in one reality tunnel. Uh, you know, you just have a much more broad and perhaps compassionate view of humanity to walk in lots of people's shoes. And by shoes, I mean worldviews. Um, and, and more broadly, it, it expands your available toolkit of skills and available responses to the world. You know, and I, I think that in our world, the more flexible you are, both in your belief and your skills and your personality and your identity, just the more options you have to play, you know, the more options you have to do interesting things with your life. Yeah, so I, yeah. pragmatically I, I, speaking, that's that's what I think Big M Magic is. And that's my interest in it. Yeah, that that's re that's really, I think, well put. And it's almost, you know, it really aligns with with my with my thinking. And it it uh, reminds me of Thomas Kuhn and the structure of scientific revolutions which people it's I think it's the best selling science book ever and it's amazing 
how most scientists ignore what it says because it basically says that when a, a scientific theory fails to account for the full range of human experiences then we have to start looking for a better theory and it's too it's it's too often I think uh, where modern science and even though you may think that I am a supporter I'm, I'm a supporter of the scientific method but I do think the modern materialistic science is is on its last days speaking of an apocalypse but but when you have a theory that you hold on to whether it's a religious theory or a scientific theory and you start ignoring facts to fit your model or 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 where you or where you try to force fit your model upon human experience and sort of exclude everything that doesn't fit there's a problem there and and so i think that's that's sort of where we're at in our in our in our modern culture i think where we're looking for a more all-encompassing worldview on that note i don't want to forget to ask you about the last chapter of your book which i thought was great and I will say to the listener that one reason you need to get this book is because you got to get to the last chapter, because because I think Jason, there you sort of bring everything front and center. It's called the it's called the last Jerusalem, and it's got a very very um, sort of inspiring ending, I think. Uh, and I like I like you to just to talk a little bit while we're just about the end here, just just sort of bring this to a close and on what lessons John D and your study of John D tells us for our modern world and why why you why you wound up ending the book like you did totally well i'm not going to give it all away yeah, cuz you have yeah. to you have to read right. it but yeah i always i always hide the or not hide but i in plain sight i put the most ex, i always put the most explosive stuff at the end of my books because you know i i write about some pretty intense stuff i write about things that people have been trying to keep secret for hundreds of years and i lay it out pretty clearly and rationally as perhaps you got a sense of from this conversation so uh, i always put the explosive stuff in the end because i want i only want the people who are truly committed enough to to go through the whole thing to to get there so um uh, yes. Uh, uh, so let's see. So yeah, in in just to briefly address your your previous point, uh, Thomas Kuhn. Yeah, his work is great. The whole idea of paradigms, um, of course, it's been abused uh, mercilessly, just in in the same way that um, you know uh, quantum physics and the, the many worlds interpretation of quantum physics and things like that has just been abused by the the new age world, unfortunately. But it's a good it's a good it's a great book and it's a good way of looking at things. Um, in terms of D. Yeah, and you mentioned you're a believer in the scientific method, and I think we're on the same page with that. And and if I'm to argue anything, it's to argue the same thing that D argued, which is that these things shouldn't be separate. You know, the, the spiritual world is something that humanity has been exploring and experiencing for its entire recorded history, and it should not be off limits to science. But it's only the bravest thinkers who are able to merge those in a in a true sense. Uh, not in a sense of, you know, doing some new age thing and peppering it with scientific lingo to make it seem like it's scientific. No, I mean actually bringing the scientific method and, and experiment to spiritual experience. And uh, that's, a, that's a tall order. It's, it's, uh, it's tall enough order to just become a trained scientist, which I'm not, uh, or a trained magician, which I am. And I am a trained journalist. But 
that's a tall order to bring those two worlds together. But I think that the people who have successfully done that, of which John Dee is a fascinating example, we have a lot to learn from, uh, both good and bad. And, and, and what I wanted to do with this book is, A, bring that back into public awareness. Because I think that if the human race is to evolve, and all we need to do is look out the window to see that it must, uh, then it's going to be by bringing those two seemingly contradictory things together. Um, uh, because our right now our technology is advancing to the point where it can destroy the whole, you know, the whole world many, many times over. Perhaps the whole solar system if, if nanotechnology keeps advancing uh, in in without in an unchecked way. And yet we don't have our our wisdom has not caught up with that. You know, we need to have we need both sides. We need wisdom and science, or wisdom and uh, yeah, wisdom and science to keep a pace of each other. So, I mean, I say a lot of things in the end of the book. I bring to, I, I bring a lot into focus of what we're talking about, which is the melding of the objective and subjective nature of experience uh, but also, and the nature of the mind. Uh, but also, uh, I talk quite a bit about how, um, you know, how these things have affected world history in a less enlightened way and the whole idea of the apocalypse and angels, how this has really been seized upon by in particular the Christian right and the drive towards apocalypticism. I think that, you, you know, we'd have to talk for another hour for me to break that down. So I'm not going to go there, yeah. but what I will say is that, you know, that's what the whole book is about. I mean, it's almost 600 pages describing the impact on history. And I think that if I was to, I don't like to make divisions between human beings because I think we're broadly speaking a lot more similar than we are different. But I think that if I were to make a clear distinction between humans, it would be between people who can understand metaphors and people who can't. Uh, and I think there's some stats somewhere, which I may have wrong is that 60% of the human population can't understand metaphors um, and 40% can. If 40, only If only 40% of, just think about this, if only 40% of the human race is capable of abstract thinking and thinking in metaphors and non-using language in a suggestive and non-literal way, and those people are by definition a lot smarter than the other 60% because, you know, that's a, that's a new stage of cognition, metaphoric and abstract thinking. It's, it's an actual develop, Piaget developmental stage. Um, so if all the smart people are thinking in abstract terms and then approaching spirituality and writing down what they're experiencing in very colorful language and metaphors and non-precise language, and then those texts are seized upon by people who are incapable of abstract thinking, the obvious example being the New Testament or perhaps the Old Testament, you know, all of the metaphorical parts of the New Testament. I mean, anyone who's, you know, literate who reads the new testament will understand that it's a story it's it's like you know that yeah. jesus is talking in parables and using stories as teaching tools and that it's a it's a stirring and metaphorical story about the human potential for love and things like this and and many many other things and we'll be able to appreciate it as something that tells us subjectively true things about how to be a good human being um, and even points towards having those spiritual experiences on a deeper level, whereas somebody who's not capable of thinking abstractly will get that book and decide that it means they need to kill everybody. Yeah. 
right? And that if there's one division in our world, I think that's it. It's not as much the, the religions or the, the cultures. Those are largely window dressing, right? It's, I think the real split in humanity is abstract thinkers and literal thinkers. So, so the reason I bring that up is because in the book, I look at both where all the, the lofty, we talk, especially in this podcast, we talked about kind of the lofty heights of post, uh, you know, where, where rationality is transcended into the spiritual world and the heights of spiritual thinking. But, you know, the reality of our world is that very, very few people have ever been there. And by and large, the world is full of superstitious people killing each other over things that they think are true, you know, books and things like this. And stories that they heard, and and so all of these things, whether it's John D. claiming to talk to angels, or Muhammad claiming to talk to angels, or whatever, these these religions also have a dark side, which is the expression of that by literal thinkers as an excuse for power and violence, and that seems to be kind of the natural. There seems to be something inherently that seems to be the the nature of these things so yeah, you know I, I don't come to any comforting conclusions in the book it's both profound and deeply disturbing well if if nothing else one of the messages here if if not the main message is sort of you know the show is called conversations beyond science and religion one of the reasons it's called that is is because it's been true throughout time that there has to be a way to go beyond our normal discourse on science and religion and it is it's it's like the challenge of it remains the challenge of the day it was the challenge back in John Dee's day things were more entrenched there you have science just being born you have orthodox religion being much more entrenched today we have modern science being much more entrenched you have orthodox religion sort of receding a little bit you have modern spirituality coming to the forefront and i and i think the hope is that we will move beyond science and religion that there will be a unified worldview and in fact i think that there has to be uh this has to happen this is not some something that we we just uh you know, would be a nice thing to occur. I think it's essential for the survival of the of the human race. Uh, and I'm going to end on that note. Uh, this is Philip Camelot's conversations beyond science and religion. And Jason, why don't you quickly tell folks? Uh, I know you have a website. It's called Ultra Culture. But anything else about about contacting you that you'd like to tell the listener? Yeah. So the book is called John D and the Empire of Angels. You can find it on Amazon. And you can also find it at johnd007.com. And all of my other projects are available at jasonlouv.com. Okay, very good. Once again, Jason, it's been um, invigorating speaking with you. This is, this is clearly a contribution to both science and religion and spirituality. And I'd like to thank you for your time. Once again, this is Philip Camello. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion. And we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening been listening to conversations beyond science and religion hosted by philip camilla to find out more about philip and his book the collapse of materialism visit the collapse of materialism.com